Well, hello, this is Phil Miliarati, and this is the Pray for Surf podcast, and this is part two with Jim Hirsch, Mark Dillon, and I co-interviewing the collaborator for Mike Love's My Life, uh, Good Vibrations, My Life as a Beach Boy. Uh, Mark, thanks for being on the line and co-interviewing again. Thanks, Thank Phil. you. Yeah, good to have you. And Jim Hirsch, thank you for making more time for uh, this conversation about your role in Mike's book and other things that roll out of that. So hello, Jim, and thank you. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, well, just before we started, uh, several other interviews. Uh, just any, uh, this is maybe, what, uh, six weeks, eight weeks into the publication of the book? Just wondering, uh, are you getting a lot of uh, interest? Uh, what What's going on? Well, you know, Mike is doing most of the publicity and the interviews i I basically just done um radio interviews some podcasts kind of like this some you know uh um people who are interested in the beach boys and some uh you know rock and roll stations but but really you know mike is is the primary spokesman for for this project. sure well and we of course uh, all of us uh, agree with that but uh, mark and i appreciate you taking now a second time to talk about the book, your role in it, and uh, you know, you're uh, you have a unique perspective. None of us have sat down, like you said, you kind of move into their house whenever you'd go to to do some work on the book with them, and uh, so you're you're helping us see uh, maybe not a different side as much as a little deeper into some of these things. So uh, sure. before we before Mark and I jump in, I thought with the kind of interviews you're having, any questions that have surprised you from them, or maybe one that we wouldn't think of asking that. Uh, it's popped up, just off the cuff. Um, you know, no real surprise questions. Although I, I, I would like to clarify something that I said in our in our last conversation because I think I didn't do as good a job as I should have in, in explaining my answer. And I think it got some some buzz on the on the internet among the, the Beach Boy fans. So, um, oh, the, so you may be referring to the first question that we that we were going to ask you, but go ahead. That's fine. Well, uh, uh, so this pertains to the question you asked about the the 50th anniversary uh, tour oh, okay. that the Beach Boys took five years ago. I guess it was now, uh, and or I guess it was actually four years. And the the question was, you know, why did it end when it ended, and specifically the charge that Mike had fired Brian from the tour. And I, I just want Wait, to clarify. If I, if I could just if I could just jump in for a sec, uh, I think my side of it's been misconstrued as well because I, I, I'm well aware why it ended. It, it ended when it was supposed to end. I mean, I interviewed the guys around that time. Bruce Johnson told me, he said, "Mark my words, like this has an end date to it." So there was never any confusion about that. But I mean, I guess what people are commenting on is after that, you know, Brian and Al turned around and said, "Well, we want to continue doing it," and you know. Apparently, Mike didn't want to continue doing it. Well, yeah, so so that raises a slightly different question. But just yeah, so so just to clarify one point that that the that the as you just said, you know, the, the everyone on that tour did what they were contractually obliged to do, and and so when you know Mike woke up one morning on when they were out there on the road, and and he reads or is told that. He fired Brian Wilson. You know that really hurt Mike because it was false. 
you know, and the, and the, the last thing he would want to do anyway is to do something hurtful toward Brian because, as we discussed before, there, there, there's no ill will between these, these, these two guys. And so, and so that's one point. Now, the second point you raised is that then later, you know, Brian said that, uh, you know, he would have liked to have continued. Now, to, to be honest, I've never heard Brian say that explicitly. There was a, a column that was written that, that appeared in the Los Angeles Times saying that, but whether Brian actually wrote it or said it is, is something I've, I've not seen. But that said, I do think, um, and I, I know that Brian had a great time on that tour. Brian loves being a beach boy, and I think if Brian could rewrite history, he would have preferred to have stayed working with the band in the late 1990s when when um, Brian voted to give Mike the license. Uh, I think that's a huge part of Brian Wilson's identity. I saw Brian's band play in Boston last year, and I was anticipating hearing Brian mainly playing tracks from his single album or from other things that he has done over the years by himself because there's this whole narrative about Brian wanting to separate himself from the Beach Boys and you know forge his own identity. Yet when, when you go to a Brian Wilson concert, and this was pre-Pet Sounds, you go, you go to a Brian Wilson concert, you hear 75% of the set is Beach Boys 1962-1966. That's the music that he appears to, to really enjoy because that's what, what he played. And so, um, so I, I think you know the the truth about Brian is that if, if he had his, his his preference, and Mike wrote this in his book, he, he very much would have liked to have stayed with the, the Beach Boys, playing with the band, but he took a different path, and uh, and I think that's unfortunate for all concerned. Yeah, it'll always be a mystery as to why Brian didn't didn't want the license for himself or, or to be part of it back in 1998. Well, I will I will give you my uh, thoughts on, on that, and you can take it for what it's worth. I believe that Brian had advisors and, and managers and promoters who said, Brian, you can do better by yourself. You're Brian Wilson, understandably. And if you, um, you know, stake out a solo career, that will be better for you, better for you in terms of your reputation, in terms of you know, financially and, and everything else, if you do this as a solo artist. That's what he had been told for years. That's what Eugene Landy was telling him for, for years. Um, and, uh, and that's understandable because, you know, Brian is Brian. But I think in his, in his heart of hearts, Brian really loves being a beach boy. And that came through on, on that tour. I, I wasn't there, but I've interviewed many people who were on that tour. And, the, and, the, and the, what everyone says is that Brian had a great time. And that, to me, is why it's unfortunate. For Brian's sake, not for Mike, but for Brian's sake, it's unfortunate that he is not with, with the, the, the band. And I guess that's part of why the fans want so much for them, for them to come together and it uh, doesn't seem to be in the works. Well, and, and I believe they would come together if it were just up to Mike and Brian. And, and, and Mike has said this. He's, you know, as you can imagine, he, he gets asked these questions every time when he's doing the book stuff and and you know and what what Mike always says is that if if Brian walked in here right now and he sat with me and we had a piano we would just go over there and start creating music 
you know so that's so the the issue isn't between them it's the the issue is with people surrounding them and i would suggest that people primarily surrounding surrounding brian a lot of the reasoning in the book for that has to do with with, with uh, economics. I mean, Mike spells out, yeah. you know, uh, that this this thing lost money. I think that's how it's characterized. And and this is something that I mean, maybe you've read it on uh, SmileySmile.net. A lot of the fans are really perplexed about how this reunion tour could have lost money because I mean, you know, dates were added to it. So why would people willingly? Why would the Beach Boys willingly go into it if it was going to lose money? And why why would other venues continue booking it? If it was losing money. Um, well, first, I, I don't go on smiley, dot smiley, smile, whatever. So I, I, I don't know what's going on there. But uh, And there are others who have more expertise than I do on the, the economics of, of that, of that um, tour. But what, what I do know is that they were losing money on the domestic sites. Um, you know, when you book a, a site uh, or, or book a concert, you don't know what the revenue is going to be until, until you're, you're done and all the tickets have been sold and all the, the costs have been paid. And, um, and what I know is, is, that, is that because of, you know, it was, a, it was a very expensive tour to arrange or a lot of people involved, a very elaborate set, um, it, it just it, it did not make money on its domestic sites. Overseas, though, they 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 did make money. So net net, I'm not exactly sure um, how they ended up, um, but but that's but but they 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 did the number of concerts that they were were planning to do. I think they they did have 50 uh, and first set, and then they added 23 more. Um, uh, but I, I, I do know that continuing that tour as arranged was just wasn't possible financially. Also, you know, for, 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 for that, for the, for them to play in the, in the, in the big cities, you know, that's one thing you you can attract a certain number of people and a certain price point in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago. But as you know, what the Beach Boys have done over all these years, they've played in secondary markets where the price points are are, are lower, where the venues are smaller, and where they try to run a, a lean and, and mean operation, and and that's how they've made it work for the particular you know for the last ten fifteen years. Well, I think it's unfortunate that uh, the word it got you know, the word used was a great headline, but you know that Mike fired. The other guys, uh, we don't have to take sides in order to say what you know really happened. Like you said, they all uh, fulfilled their contracts, and as they were coming to the end, it'd be like, well, let's keep going. This sounds fun, and I, I wish that could have happened, and yet maybe somehow can in the future. But uh, the reality is there's two very different approaches economically and location-wise and probably a 100 other things. And so um, you can't just say after the last concert, let's do 10 more of these, uh, you know, Mike using the Beach Boy license and his business acumen uh, already had uh, probably 40 dates lined up by that time. So it, it, it I don't know if this is a, a, a just, this is just an observation, but it just seems like in all of these arguments, everything tips towards Mike being um, a villain, not, not a hero. Maybe both you guys can respond to this. 
maybe his his character or or his way of doing humor uh, brings on some of that, but I think that causes people to just automatically assume he's the one who's been the anti guy rather than uh, he has a valid position as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll 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 yield the floor in a moment to Mark, but still, I mean, it's really it's a great question, and I'll I'll just share this with you very hopefully concisely. You know, I, I I've been doing this for more than thirty years as a as a journalist and an author. Um, this has been a project unlike any other project I've ever worked on because of sort of the unique circumstances surrounding Mike Love and the history of the Beach Boys. Let's stipulate that Mike is a controversial figure, and some of that controversy is, is, has definitely been brought on him by himself. But the question is, is the, is the critique against Mike or the criticism, uh, criticisms against him all these years, are they valid? And so just for one example, now, as, as, as both of you know, um, in 1994, uh, Brian was found guilty of denying Mike credit and compensation uh, for 35 songs that Mike had written. It was, uh, it was probably the largest, almost certainly the largest proven case of fraud in the history of the music industry. Brian did not appeal that decision. Mike lost out on tens of millions of dollars that he never recovered. And to this day, there are Beach Boy fans who don't know what Mike actually contributed to the Beach Boys. Now, in the New York Times book review of Mike's book, the reviewer, Janet Maslin, referred to that copyright lawsuit. And she described it as a bone of contention on Mike's part. Well, it's, it, it is not a bone of contention on Mike's part. It is part of the documented history of the Beach Boys. But there is a contingent of Brian Wilson fans who will not accept that history. And that is what Mike has been contending with and trying to overcome for some 40 years. And so that's why I say this project has been unlike any other that I've ever worked on. Well, and Mark, I'll let you in a second. I, I'm certainly not an apologist for Mike, nor uh, the, the kinds of things that make people bristle. They make me bristle too. And I think I've, as I read the book, I mean, some of the things I underlined were Mike kind of saying, yeah, that's right. That was, you know, what, uh, he, not a quote, but, you know, I think he's, he's taking some ownership of, of that part. So, I, you know, I think there's uh, some maturity there. I don't mean that in an elitist way that, and and and, and 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 I think you know what was interesting for me in doing this project is in interviewing people who have known Mike most of of his life. Many of the people I spoke to um, phrased the conversation in this fashion. You know, I've had my ups and downs with Mike over the years, but we're in a good place now. I think the mm -hmm. story of this guy is that he has uh, made tremendous. Uh, uh, he's well. Let's say all of us are works in progress. I'm a work in progress. Yeah, but absolutely. but Mike, more than most of us, I think, um, you know, learned from his mistakes. He matured. He got smarter. He became uh, more sensitive, more empathetic. He became a much better father, a much better husband. He's still not perfect. But I, I've spoken not. to most of his kids, um, and to me, what hopefully what people get out of this book is, is how this guy 
has indeed become a very different person now at age 75 than he was not just 50 years ago, but even 20 yeah. and 10 years ago. And so to me, sure. that, that's what made this, made this project rewarding for me. Yeah, and, and I know I'm right, mind reading and therapy, you know, thinking I'm a therapist here with this comment, but uh, as I read it, I, I heard Mike apologizing uh, using maybe more spiritual words. Forgive me for that. He didn't, these aren't quotes of his, and I, that's my mind reading, and I may be wrong, but that's what I picked up. Here's a person who doesn't just grow old. He's, you know, we all are trying to grow up in the process. One comment, then I promise, Mark, it's yours. Um, I, I'm not an insider on the Beach Boys, but I've been able to, you just use a little, you know, kind of peek in or sneak in or hear, hear just enough to, to, to have the sense that uh, maybe I should ask you almost as a question, Jim. There are critics of, of uh, uh, you know, Mike Love. I, I just wonder of the, just to use a number, you know, the thousand vocal critics on the chat rooms and boards, I wonder how many of those have ever even met him or um, met someone in the band or the band family that the the – the, the veracity or the legitimacy of, of those ongoing, co- consistent, he's not a hero and a villain, he's just a villain. Um, anyway, yeah. I'm just b- babbling on, but Mark, do you want to respond or Jim, either one? Well, I, first of all, I, I'll say this. I mean, I, I don't think you can say you love the Beach Boys and not feel strongly positive about Mike Love and his contribution. I mean, you know, there continue to be Mike haters. That will probably always be the case. I mean, maybe people blame him for killing smile i mean maybe there's some truth to that maybe there's not i mean i think people would point to him for for maybe leading the band into a very nostalgic direction but i mean you know for many years brian really producing very much so i think you know if you go to the late 80s that's when the mike hatred really started to boil among certain people first of all he had his his bizarre uh, rant <laughs> at, at the rock and roll hall of fame which which is which you know he explains in the book. And then, you know, when, when Brian came out with his solo album, which, you know, might not have sold a ton, but I think was a very good album, that sort of gave fuel to the fire. Well, look, look what Brian can do on his own, and look what the Beach Boys, you know, haven't done uh, in many years. And then the Brian's first memoir came out, and obviously written through this heavy landy filter, and it was so anti-Mike. I mean, you know, the writer ended up getting sued successfully. Um, so, there, you know, at the time, though, it was fueling this anti Mike fervor, and I would say that you know the tide has turned. I think among many fans to a large degree. I mean, because we realize he did get ripped off with, with the uh, with the songwriting credits. I mean, he was not the villain there. The villain there was Murray Wilson, because as we know, right. Murray ripped off not only Mike Love but Tony Asher and you know and other people too. So, you know, we, we understand that he was within his rights, and, you know, I, I think people have to appreciate that he's kept the Beach Boys name going after all these years. I do think that not touring with Brian sort of was a bit of a step back in terms of that love that people were feeling towards him. But, I mean, overall, I think people have a more balanced uh, outlook on Mike these days. And, Mark, and jump I, in. Well, and I think, um, you know, I, first of all, I, I appreciate those, those comments from both of you, I, I'm sure Mike would would as well. And certainly, um, you know, Mike finally telling his story has been helpful. And, and Mike has been getting these emails from fans who um, have said to him, you know, Mike, I, I, I've thought about you in a certain way, and I've been very critical of you, 
for all these years, and now that I've read your story, I apologize because I didn't realize, uh, you know, uh, uh, what what the what the real story was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's 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 interesting. One question that I asked Mike quite a few times was uh, back in the in the seventies in the seventies, which was really when the anti-Mike um, uh, fervor began, when he was blamed for the smile collapse. I said to Mike, you know, why didn't you stand up and tell what your story was? Why didn't you hire a publicist? Why didn't you, why didn't you hire an agent? Or why didn't you just, you know, sit down with these journalists and authors and documentarians, all these people over the years who crafted this narrative about you that stays with you to this day? You know, why are you, are you waiting until age 75 to do this? And, and Mike says that, um, well, you know, when you when you're uh, a, a, an artist and you're on stage, you you just develop a thick skin, and and you guess and you you just kind of have this sense of well, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna care about the criticism because if I did, I would go bonkers. Um, but and 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 there's certainly truth to that. I mean, Mike does have a thick skin, but I think there's another layer there, which is what well, I think I think actually the criticism does affect him it does bother him it certainly bothers his his family his his wife and kids but i think there's also this sense with mike you know he, he went through some very tough times you know, you know mike writes very candidly about the nervous breakdown he had in 1970 his his mom was afraid that mike was was, was going to die you know because he had a bad reaction to medication that he was given in the hospital Mike went through the whole Charles Manson thing, you know, where um, one of Manson's family members threatened to kill him. Um, Mike went through the whole, you know, having his 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 songs not credited to him, and then Murray selling the songs fraudulent fraudulently to uh, to a a record label, which led Mike to believe he would never get credit for writing. California girls and I get around and all the songs that he was so proud of and then he was he had problems in his personal life he went through a tough divorce that he had problems financially and he and and um I, I think the reason he never really was able to tell his story was that he he couldn't he was he was in such a a very difficult place all he mm. could do is withdraw and Mike is as I may have mentioned before I mean he's the ultimate introvert and he's even though you know he can be. Wait, wait, very, wait, 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 wait. Go back. That, that I think most. I'm not saying you're wrong, but for you to say ultimate introvert, the image in my mind is him prancing around on stage with some weird outfits and. That's so, right. Un- that's right. Unpack that a little bit. Because because he he prances around on stage because he knows on stage he's safe. He knows that hmm. no one can get to him, and he knows he's got music to to sing and perform that that people love. But right. so so that I mean that and I think it's it's I'm sure you've heard of actors or comedians talking about how they're they're really introverts in in their personal life, but they the way they get out of their shell is by performing as this other person. Well, well Mike was you know Mike loved the front man of of the Beach Boys, and that that got him out of of his shell. But when you talk to people who have traveled with him over the years. Um, you know, when, when he's on the road, he stays in, in his hotel room. He does not come out. And then he stays there. He meditates. He relaxes. He irons his own clothes. You know, he he's, he 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 doesn't go out and 
and do the clubs and party and, and all the rest. And what I saw when I was spending time with him and, and his house, I was there for um, several Christmases, and they would have the, these big holiday parties, families and family members and friends all in the house, all you know, having fun. Mike would just recuse himself and sit in the corner by himself. And, you know, obviously people would come and talk to him and say hi, but he, he didn't like to inter- interact with other people in the way you would think an extrovert would, you know, dancing in the kitchen like some of the other family <laughs> members were. Um, he, and, and part of the, the challenge of this book, as I may have mentioned before, is that, you know, he's, he, he believes that stoicism is a sign of strength, so re- revealing yourself and your emotions and talking about mm. personal matters is very tough for him. Um, and so, and so that was just. So I, I've kind of, kind of gone on, on a digression here, but to to the point of you know why has Mike, has Mike been this punching bag for so many people yeah. over, over the years? Part of the problem was that Mike was never able to stand up and say, you know, wait, "Wait a second here. There's there's another side to this story. Let me tell you what was going on in the studio when we were trying to create Smile." This is what happened, and this was what's going on with Brian, and this was what was going on with people around Brian, and this was why Brian was having so many s- struggles. Um, now, now, ultimately, I think, as, as Mike writes in the book, uh, he and, and Carl and Dennis and Bruce were all vindicated when the, when the smile tapes were reassembled and, and, and released in 2011, and you heard the vocals uh, uh, as they were done in 1966, and just how damn good they were. And no one can credibly claim that Mike Love was trying to sabotage the Smile album when you hear him singing on those on those songs, because vocally the Beach Boys were at their peak then, and they sound great. They were trying to do what they always were trying to do for Brian, help Brian realize his dream. Now, would they sometimes complain about it or, or whatever? Yes, but, I mean, Mike and... Brian always kind of had that, you know, relationship where they would tweak each other and complain and nag, and that that too has been misinterpreted as, you know, Mike Love, you know, being antagonistic to Brian. That was how they got along, you know, and 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 yet that's always been misused against Mike because Mike because they just didn't understand the nature of the relationship. Yeah, the class of smile is pretty complicated. There was a lot going on. I think it's just too easy to say uh, Mike didn't like it, therefore the project ended after so many months. You know, living back in the day, and again, I wasn't an insider, but my my view is, for whatever it's worth, maybe not much, but I I think smile was inches away from being done. I realize it's this complexity. There's tapes all over the place, all that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, I I guess my biggest, if there's a regret, if I could change one thing in Beachway history, that album would have come out. And I I wasn't there. Uh, I don't know the conversations. But when you put all the pieces together, my observation is it's as much Brian and his, uh, I'll just call it mental state, no judgment over him, but just his mental inability to, to, all the jigsaw puzzle pieces were there. Many of them stuck together. He just couldn't finish those last few that made it, feel right for him and and And, i uh, think it was and i i agree with that but i would take it one step further and and again mike writes about this in the book um you know ultimately when they did recreate those fragments and put them together so they they could be released in 2011 what the sound engineers mark lynette and 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 the archivist alan boyd realized was that the, the problem in 1966 
wasn't just that you know uh, Brian wasn't 100% because of the drugs and because of the pressure and the anxiety and all the rest. The problem was that Brian thought he could do what he did in good vibrations, um, create music in this modular format, and then piece it together in the in the studio. He tried to take that uh, template and use it for an entire album, creating all these all these fragments or or um, music by modularity, if you will. And, yeah. and 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 what they realized, what what Mark and Alan realized, was that Brian did not have the technology to do what he wanted to do in. To, in, in 1966, only when they had, you know, the the computer systems that they have now, in two, uh, after 2000, was Smile even possible? And, and I I believe that the history of Smile is that Brian was just ahead of his time. He was trying to do something that technologically was not was was not possible um, to be done. And in some ways, I credit Brian because he was trying to you know push the envelope and and go go someplace where no music producer had ever gone before but in doing that he pushed himself too far he couldn't get it done right. and that led obviously to so many bad outcomes after that one of the things uh that i find unfortunate in in mike's book is that um he calls he implies that smiley smile is a bad album and it seems he always associates chart position with quality, I even had to laugh because I mean, Pet Sounds is an album that I mean, many people would say is a perfect album. But but Mike kind of implies, well, you know, if I had been more in on the songwriting, perhaps it would have been a bigger hit. But I mean, of course, it, again, Pet Sounds was way ahead of its time because it has sold a lot of copies. It just took many years to do so, and it's unfortunate. Like Smiley Smiley implies being a bad album because I think a lot of fans would say that's a great album. I mean, it might not be Smile, but it's it's something uh, quite unique and beautiful. Well, I, I mean, you know, look, that's a, I, I, I appreciate that comment and, and the and the criticism. I I think you know, from Mike's point of view, uh, the Beach Boys have done dozens of, of albums, and he he doesn't like them all this, in the same vein. He likes some more than others. He didn't love sure. um, Smiley Smile, um, but but the, but if I can just add on one thing when about the Pet Sounds observation. Um, Mike did say that. He said that to me, and it's and it's reflected in the book that he he thought at the time when you know when they were in the studio singing, he thought there were certain songs that if he had been more involved in, they could have been better. Uh, because and and he he based that feeling on the track record that he and Brian had working as as, as songwriter and singer you know mike has a very distinctive kind of lead voice you know some call it nasally some call it chesty whatever it's very it's a very distinctive sound that you hear in you know surfing surfing usa etc um and when i heard mike say that to me at first i you know that kind of uh i kind of raised my eyebrow because i know you know pet sounds is considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, rock album of all time, and here Mike is is, is telling me that. But then I thought about, it. you know, if you're Mike Love, or for that matter, if you're any singer songwriter, and you have confidence in in your ability, you have to believe that anything you put your fingers on, you can improve. And if you don't believe that, you're in the wrong business. It's like I believe if if you send me a a an, an article or a manuscript. I can put my fingers on that and, and edit it and find a way to improve it. And if I didn't believe that, 
I got to find a new job. So to me, that just reflected how someone like Mike, with his track record and his self-regard, which is no different than I think anyone who's in that business, that's just the way he thinks. And so I, I don't hold that against him. I just think that's, that's um, representative of, of how uh, a singer-songwriter thinks and operates. You know, listening to, to you guys talk about this, uh, I'm not trying to defend Mike. That my whole purpose with my comments and observations reading the book is just to try to better understand him. And I think one of his problems is he's his own and only apologist, whereas Brian, you know, in the day had Leonard Bernstein and, and others who uh, say, yeah, this man's genius, and they, they point to certainly not every one of his songs, but they, they point to the surf's up type stuff, good vibrations. I mean, Wow. Uh, and then I think when people think of Mike Love, just to make the point, they kind of think, well, he's a guy who's talking, uh, you know, car uh, engines. And and uh, and the irony is he he's probably just as genius at putting silly, they're not silly, but, you know, uh, car lyrics together as Brian might be to put. I, I don't think Mike did a lot of the car lyrics. I think a lot of that yeah. was Roger Christian and Gary Usher. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's true. Correct. I, I mean, yeah, you might you're right, admit Mark. he doesn't know much about cars. But, I mean, I know what you're saying, and, and I don't know if he's his only apologist. Go to a Beach Boys concert with Mike Love's Beach Boys. I've been to many. People love it. People love it. They're, like, cheering yes. the whole time, and, 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 you know, he's soaking in the adulation. So, I mean, he, you know, we're talking about hardcore Beach Boy fans who, you know, the, the sag yeah. of Brian Wilson is like the ultimate narrative for them, you know. And so, so those people might have a problem with Mike, but the public at large, I think they, they, they see him as the lead singer of the Beach Boys. Yeah. Thank well, you. So, so that's and, – and, and it is – I mean, I, I, I really uh, – I appreciate that comment because I was often struck by that. On the one hand, those of us who who read the histories of the, you know, we're, we're kind of um, seeing, you know, one half of the of the of the Beach Boys divide. There's what I would call the Beach Boy elites, the music critics, and those who really love the more progressive music and who um and and who and who really you know uh, um, attach themselves to the Brian Wilson story and then there are there is the masses of America the people who love the hits the people who frankly a lot of the music critics um they they think that the surf songs and the car songs and the songs about the girls, you know, they could look down on the, on that music. They think it's somehow it's you know anything you know, if, because so many people love the music, there must be something wrong with it. And there is an elitist attitude to you know that part of the divide. And Mike is associated with um, just everyone else. <laughs> and and for Mike, you know, I I I I, I kind of thought that he he must feel like he lives in this in this kind of strange world. And on the one hand, he is subject to all of this criticism. On the other hand, this guy has been getting standing ovations for 55 straight years. You know, like when, when, when I'm 75, I hope to be able to, you know, get up from the sofa and, and you know, get a beer. And, and, he, and he's going all over the country um, to adoring fans. And so I, I think it must be hard for him to process that. How can I be... Um, you know, the recipient of all this um, love and affection on the one hand, but be seen as the ultimate villain on the other. Um, just a, a, a quick anecdote. One time Mike and I were in the hills of San Diego County. I forget where we were driving to, but we, we pulled over and some remote 
cafeteria for lunch. And so we're, we're, we're just, you know, walking through, getting our, our lunch, and, we, and right when we get to the cashier, it off, or from the PA system or the sound system, here comes fun, fun, fun. And <laughs> you hear Mike's voice, and Mike looks at me, and he kind of cocks his eyebrow as if to say, you know, I wrote that song with Brian 50 years ago, and that's my voice, and here I am in some remote, God-forsaken cafeteria, and I can hear what I did all those years ago. You know, how many of us, of us would, will, will ever have such a yeah. moment? And what I think it says to Mike is that, you know, it's, it's reassuring, it's, it's reaffirming to him that oh, what he did was r- really special. And, uh, and so that, that was a moment I won't forget. I'd also like to add that um, his lyrics for Good Vibrations are brilliant. I mean, this is a, a song from 1966 that really anticipates the psychedelic movement. Like, it's right sort of at the front end of that and, and, and captures it beautifully, works really well with the music. So they came up with something great there. But I guess what, what Mike also, you know, probably has to understand is that the Beach Boys are off touring the whole time. I mean, when, when, when Brian was writing the songs for Pet Sounds, they, they were in Japan. So I think it's inevitable that Brian's going to have to look like he's, he wants to record music. He wants to compose. He wants to get in the studio. He can't wait for the Beach Boys to come back. They're never around. So I think it was inevitable that, that Brian was going to look elsewhere. And I think, you know, as an artist, it, it's safe to say that he also wanted to, to broaden you know, his, his palette and try different people. And I think, you know, you especially see that with Van Dyke Parks. I mean, he's a very singular talent that, 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 that thinks in a way that's so different from Mike. So, I mean, I, I think it was inevitable that, that Brian was going to go elsewhere. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, that was the arrangement that, that the Beach Boys made at the end of 1964 when Brian said he did not want to tour anymore. He wanted to stay in the studio and create music and the other guys would be out on the roads playing the music, promoting it, generating um, revenue not just through the concert sales, but, but by promoting the songs, generating revenue for record sales. And um, it, was a, it was a great arrangement, you know, for, for those three-plus years. And, uh, and yes, and, and, you know, Brian always wanted to work with a partner. I think he had a, uh, you know, he relied on that, second person to, you know, as kind of his sounding board or as just someone that he almost needed in kind of a codependent relationship. Whereas when Mike wrote with, with Dennis Wilson, you know, Dennis would like, would give Mike the, the tracks or the, the music and maybe they would talk a bit about what the song is about, like Pacific Ocean Blue. And then Mike would go off and, and do it by himself. Whereas with Brian, it was a, it was a very interactive process because I think both of those guys fed off of each other's personalities. The relationship between Mike and Dennis is uh, is certainly a fascinating one, and and I think it's you know probably a lot of people don't know that they you know had these great uh, collaborations together. And I asked Mike about this, and he said, you know, yes, there was a lot of tension, but there was also a lot of mutual uh, respect for each other's gifts. Yeah, and you know, really, they. The, the, and, and let's be clear, what, you know, for better or worse, most of the tension had to do around competition for girls, for attention of girls or being with her. I mean, you know, they, they both loved women. I mean, let's just be honest. And, and that was what, and, you know, they were jealous of each other. And so 
you know, in retrospect, it was juvenile, uh, so much of it, um, because um, what they shared was, was much more powerful than what they did not share. What they first thought, they were both really into nature and the environment. And, you know, Dennis, of course, was the, the surfer. Um, but, but beyond that, he, he, he was passionate about the environment. And his, and his album, Pacific Ocean Blue, with, which Mike wrote the, the lead song for, re- reflected those sensibilities. And, um, and, and, you know, Dennis was a very different kind of talent than Carl and, and Brian, but he was still an extraordinary talent. And we only saw, um, you know, really just the surface of that talent before, you know, before Dennis's demons um, got, got the better of him. And so that was, you know, really unfortunate. But, but as, as a duo, when they were touring together, when, when Mike and Dennis were not fighting with each other, they actually worked very well together on stage because they were both so animated, both so um, passionate about the music, and both, you know, very, very, um, you know, they were the, the, the performers on stage. You know, Carl didn't do much on stage, Brian didn't do much, Al, but both, both Dennis and 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 Mike were the ones who really you know got got the glare of the of the, of the spotlight, and so it was a it was a combination that worked very well um, for for the band, and and tragically it it ended all, all too soon. I, I guess it might have started as a uh, as a rivalry of, uh, about women, but I mean it certainly got darker. I mean. You know, as is outlined in the book, I mean, Dennis had an affair with Mike's wife. I mean, certainly Mike didn't approve of Dennis's lifestyle, his, his drug taking. I mean, there's his Manson affiliation. And then, of course, you know, later getting together with Mike's illegitimate daughter. Well, so just, just to, to be clear, the, the daughter is, is, um, was not an illegitimate daughter. That, that had to, that, and that is one of the myths that persists, unfortunately, to this day. Um, Mike... Uh, uh, the, the background of this is that in the in the 1960s, um, Mike had a, a brief affair with a woman who who gave birth to a daughter, and then she later claimed that Mike was the father. They went to court. A judge ruled that that the woman had not proven paternity. Um, Nonetheless, the girl did um, grow up with the last name Love, and she believed, and perhaps when she was told by her mom that Mike was, was, was the father, but there was no determination of that, no legal proof of that. Now, this was before they had you know, the kind of test that they have now where you could prove it definitively, but as far as Mike is concerned, you know, that, that was not his, his child. Um, so, so that's just a point of clarification, and then in terms of the larger point, though, you know, why did Dennis um, have an affair with and then marry this this girl? And you know, Dennis was 36, 37, and she was 16 or 17. Um, whether this girl was or wasn't Mike's child really didn't matter. What, what mattered was that at that point in, in Dennis's life, he wasn't able to take care of himself, let alone a teenage bride, let alone a newborn. And um, it, was, it, it was a really unfortunate and very tragic end to, to um, 
Dennis's life. And then, of course, he he died short you know, sh- shortly after that that child was was born. Uh, I, I just wanted to mention this too, because this I think is one of the biggest revelations in the whole book, and nobody's talking about it anywhere. Is this quote from Mike, uh, where he says that Dennis said. I just saw Charlie take his M16 and blow this black cat in half and stuff him down the well. I- I'm wondering about when Mike told you this quote, because, I mean, I don't know who-, who he's referring to. Like, some people think this is Bernard Crow, but it doesn't fit that description at all. So, I mean, if, if this is true, uh, unless it's just a wild claim by Dennis, and I don't know why he, w- he would make such a claim, I mean, I think this-, this adds a whole new element to the whole scholarship of Charles Manson. This is another murder that that he committed that I don't think has has been reported anywhere. Well, so when the the book was published and there were some excerpts of the, um, that that did get some attention that Dennis said that he saw Manson kill this guy and and stuff him in out at the Spawn Ranch. Um, you know, from Mike's point of view, Dennis had no motive to lie about what he saw and Mike could could see that Dennis was shaken up, you know, um when when um he 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 came back from from the ranch. Uh so Mike thought it was true. I have no reason to doubt that what Dennis saw actually happened. The I I read a good deal about Charles Manson and you know that there were a lot of people coming in and out of that ranch all the time, a lot of a lot of people who didn't necessarily have, you know, um, other people watching out for them. So t- to me, it seemed possible that somehow there was some guy walking through that ranch who got under Charles Manson's skin and and Charles killed him, and no one ever filed a missing persons report. So it didn't it didn't strike me as as lacking credibility. Whether it adds a new detail in the Charles Manson scholarship, it it, it perhaps does. Um, but I don't think it changes our basic view of Charles Manson. I'm glad we're doing some talking about Mike and Dennis. I think one of the things uh, in reading you know, your book, I mean Mike's book, but you know you're you're such a big part of it, Jim, is uh, I'll, I'll make an observation. You tell me if I'm extrapolating too much. I just sensed uh, he was trying. The, the the negative things between Mike and Dennis are well known. You know the the fist fight and the tarmac things like that. The things we've already mentioned. Um, but I think his comment, you know, he and Dennis went surfing together. Now, that's maybe not totally new news, but just, just the placement of that, maybe some other things. I just had a sense he's trying to say, uh, no matter all the negative headlines you read about us, uh, Dennis and I had a friendship, and it went back as far as my friendship with Brian kind of thing. Now, am I making too much out of that? Or no, no, that's, that exactly, that's exactly right. And I would... I put Carl in that as well. I mean, that the you know what's what's uh, what's so unfortunate about so much of the discussion about the Beach Boys is that it all focuses on the the discord and disagreements down the line, the controversies and all the rest, and we forget that you know these guys were an incredibly close knit family, and this was a family band, family plus. Al Jardine, of course, and then when, when David Marks came on board. But it was a fundamentally, it was a family band, and Murray was the manager, and Mike's mom, Glee, had a huge role in, in nurturing music, not just in Mike, but in, in, his, in her nephews as well. And, and, um, and so, you know, it's like, it's like if you know of, of any family where there are fractures and people 
go their own way. It's, it's very sad. Well, that's kind of the, the story of the Beach Boys in some way because um, this was such a close family, you know, from from the, the yeah. from the days growing up. And I and I, as I mentioned, I interviewed a couple of of Mike's siblings. I interviewed David Marks, who was there, and um, it was uh, and so you know that that to me is and that and I think so much of the of the actual music of you know the you know when they were singing about the good life of Southern California and the the beaches and the and the cars and driving around and the, you know going out to the high school football games and all the rest you know that was the world that they occupied and it was such a good world and and uh, and and I think when you ask the question you know, why why has the music you know endured and, and certainly it has to do with you know the harmonies and the lyrics but I think it's just to me there it it, it captures the spirit. That, that they were trying to capture in the early 60s in America, a very joyous, upbeat, happy experience, and mm-hmm. our world can never have t- too much of that. Uh, let me ask you, and Mark, uh, jump in after this one with another question, but I'm thinking of uh, Alan Jardine. Uh, he doesn't have his own book or no one's written about him. Uh, he just seems to be this guy out front who's just up there smiling when he sings. His voice is incredible, even now today. Uh, and maybe some cursory fans would say, well, but I, I think, well, maybe Mike didn't fire Brian and Al at the end of the 50th, but he certainly fired Alan from the Beach Boys. Is it, did you, and I'm not trying to necessarily go through all those details. My point is, did you, in talking with Mike, did you get a greater sense of, I want to say, his relationship with, with uh, Alan, or is there, is there an Alan we don't know about? Or uh, I'm not looking for gossip as much as just uh, not a whole lot, yeah, no, I, it's, yeah, he he certainly was in many ways the the forgotten Beach Boy or the or the or the underappreciated Beach Boy. Um, I think what's important about Al a couple things in terms of his, his relationship with Mike. You know, they they had a very close connection through transcendental meditation, and they wrote songs surrounding transcendental right. meditation. And they and you know that that gave them. Um, an important bond. Um, uh, um, Al is also uh, very much an environmentalist, and so Mike and Al had that in common. Um, but over time, their personalities just uh, began to to conflict. And um, and I think and I, I may mention this last time we chatted, but I think you know they they started out in 1961, and then. You know, before you know it, 40 years have gone by, and there just came a time with, in Mike's, from from Mike's point of view, where he just had to make a separation. And I, I'm not going to say anything negative about Al in this interview. No, I mean, people want to know about, you know, we Mike Mike does talk about some of the of the the conflicts he had with Al in the book, and so people can read about it there. But um, uh, but I, I I spoke to Al and. And you know he 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 saw his role on in the early days of the Beach Boys as protecting Brian from his father. Yeah, and he hmm. he saw he believed he was a buffer between him and between Brian and Murray, and he probably was. Um, and he probably played an important role in that regard. That's probably been underappreciated by Beach Boy historians. Um, 
certainly, you know, Al, as you mentioned, not only had a great voice, but it's still a, a really strong voice. Yeah, and um, I think, you know, Al's had a good life. You know, he 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 wanted to be a folk singer. He 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 ended up in this rock group and was part of the most successful American rock band of all time. And and he's still playing with with Brian. And so, I think all in all, you know, hopefully he he feels good about about the course of of his life. Just mentioned uh, Brian and Al playing together, and then going back to earlier, way earlier in our conversation in this part two, you talked about uh, my my take on it. You know, when uh, the license was was uh, given away, why didn't Brian, uh, if he had stayed, I wonder if he had stayed, if the Beach Boys might have stayed. This is my perception. You know, kind of flatline, whether or that. You know, doing some good shows, singing their songs, but I wonder if in the long run, for Beach Boy fans, it was quote unquote better. Uh, in that it, we, we did get some great music from Brian that he might not have written, no way of knowing, had he stayed a beach boy and gone to some kind of, you know, if he had stayed in that current level of participation. But also I think it, and, and you, you know, you tell me if I'm wrong, it, it just seems that it, something there spurred Michael on to make the Beach Boys uh, probably the greatest, might be the greatest concert act in the world, or at least for people who like to have a joyful experience. I think the Beach Boys are better because of that, even though the storyline I'd like to hear is, you know, they stay together and had fun and, you know, just went on. I don't know. Does that make any sense, Jim? Well, well let, me, agree with it? let me pull out a couple of pieces from that. You know, uh, when we first started talking, you, you made the, the observation that, um, that it, starting in like the, the 80s, um, there was some of the, the, the blowback from Mike began because Mike started pushing the band toward really focusing on the the oldies, the hits, and instead of branching out into new music. And indeed, I've I've read that critique many in, in many places, and I've seen it on the documentaries, uh, blaming Mike for kind of keeping the, the 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 Beach Boys in this you know forever you know endless summer rut. Um, and I and that's just not borne out by by the facts. And and, and Mike lays it out in the book. Mike was all for playing the new music starting in the late 60s and into the 70s the beach boys were putting out albums every year the problem was that the the the, the concert goers didn't want to hear songs yeah. from um you know that, that that they were putting out and didn't want to hear songs yeah, from, you hear that on a lot of the concert bootlegs from the time yeah and like they, chewing out the audience saying you can save your request till the end of the show i know <laughs> Yeah. But so so I mean there's 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 a, there's an exchange that, that Mike recalls where where there it's like 1972 1973 um, uh, um, uh, someone in the in the audience yells out uh, um, you know, sing the car songs and Mike yells back we'll do it for the encore and the guy in the audience says there will be no encore <laughs> the, the the Beach Boys gravitated back to their hits not because. Mike Love is some kind of mercenary who only cares about catering to, you know, uh, uh, this to, to, to fans who are willing to pay money to go to the concerts. He's he's they they gravitated back to those songs because that's what the fans wanted to hear. And if the Beach Boys were going to survive uh, year after year, decade after decade. They had to play songs that people actually wanted to go out and hear. And as and while I agree, and and I know others do as well, that a lot of the music they created at the end of the 60s and early 70s on the, the, the Sunflower album and, and many others, you know, that's great stuff. 
it just wasn't as popular as what they yeah. as, as what they did before. And and you know what what Mike always said to me was that you know the question was you know how how do we stay alive? How do we you know um, avoid what happens to almost all bands, which they which is they die. And what's to me this one of the storylines of Mike's book is how does this band that begins in a, in, in a particular time and place in American history, early 60s, and, and all the music is kind of is evocative of that idyllic period. How is it possible that they can leapfrog decade after decade and still uh, play 170 concerts a year and sell out and make enough money to keep going? And they did a lot of different things over the years. Some worked, some didn't. You know, they they had cheerleaders for a while. They had other acts <laughs> to join them and. And Mike has been vilified for some of these things, but to Mike's credit, you know, he he was always thinking, what can we do to keep the Beach Boys alive and relevant? Um, and and I think in, in in some ways he was he was really farsighted, and that Mike was one of the first ones to find or to enlist or to I'm sorry to enlist corporate sponsors. And when he first started doing that in the early 80s, he was vilified because they thought, well, you're diminishing the art if you have a sponsorship from Sunkiss Soda. You know, what does that have to do with creating rock and roll? Well, now, if you go to, uh, you know, uh, South by Southwest in in Austin, the, the biggest rock festival in America, every act down there either has a corporate sponsor or is trying to get one. Why? Because that's how you stay Alive, and so I think while Mike certainly had some misfires over the years, he was right more than he's wrong, and more importantly, they're still out there performing. Yeah, and the sponsorship thing is interesting because I had an interview with Dean Torrance on his new book, and he and Mike have certainly a chapter together in um, you know there's concerts together on the beach with uh, the Budweiser thing. So you know, you're and that's right. funny because Mike Mike actually left the Beach Boys at that time. Centrally, because he had had it with Dennis's, you know, alcohol and drug abuse, yeah, and wanted him yeah. to get clean. So then he goes and he does a tour sponsored by Budweiser. Budweiser. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, fair enough. Sorry, Phil, I cut you off. No, no, no. That that that's fine. I I just think that uh, you know, it's, it, the back to the original conversation on this is. Uh, Mike being vilified for just wanting to do the jukebox stuff. And, you know, again, there's heroes and villains and everyone's both, but George Lucas and Jack Riley had a lot to say about that in the sense of, you know, how could they not take advantage of what came out from, uh, you know, his film on the soundtrack and Mm -hmm. they brought in Jack Riley and, you know, he, he was, to my view, Jack was, uh, part of both camps, so to speak. I mean, he sang and helped write some of the very avant-garde songs, and yet I think he was also saying, you, you know, you, you've got to take advantage of this. But yeah, I, I don't and, know and, about that. I, I think Riley was, first of all, very much pro-Wilson brothers, not not so close to the other guys, although Mike says good things about him in the book, so, so maybe yeah, not. But, I mean, I, I think the person that really steered them more into the hits direction was Jim Gersio, because when he started managing their shows, he went to see one of their shows in Seattle. You know, it wasn't full, and they were playing a lot of the new stuff, which I personally love, but, I mean, right. it, it wasn't really getting a big crowd. And so his advice to them was play your hits. Like, don't just do it as a little medley or an encore. Just give them all your hits, you know, and, and I think yeah. uh, I think that resonated with with Mike, and of course they went and did it and uh, had a lot of success with it. Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's fair to say that that 
frustrated Carl uh, because he wanted to branch out. I mean, ultimately he did leave the, the Beach Boys for about a year and a half in the in the in the early 1980s because um, he was restless. And but but what happened? Carl came back, and I think he he, he discovered one. He, well, he discovered what they all discovered, which was that. It's very. It was very difficult for for any of them to have successful solo careers. They were better as a group than they were as, as solo artists. And so, and so, Carl learned what Dennis learned, what Brian learned, what Mike learned, what Al learned, because all of them have single uh, records, and not one of them came anywhere close to the success that they had as as a group. Which speaks to kind of the special harmonic chemistry that they had with each mm-hmm. other, uh, you know, that their, their, their voices just stacked up in such a kind of almost miraculous way that it created a sound that is very difficult for any other five guys to sing on their own. Um, but it, and it also just speaks to, um, you know, from Carl's perspective, uh, that, you know, he, he had to make a living like everyone else. And, and so when, when he did come back to the Beach Boys, you know, he he came back on his terms. This was 1982, where he he wanted certain changes made in personnel, certain changes in the song list. Um, and of course, you know, him coming back was was extremely beneficial to the Beach Boys because he Carl was such an amazingly talented performer and player. Um, but it it but I think it speaks to your point that I think I think in some ways most of them, perhaps even Mike, would would have loved to have branched off successfully in other ways, but that's easier said than, than done. And, and you, you guys probably know the music world better than I do. My guess is that that's true for most bands. They've tried to do, you know, most bands try to go off and do different things. Our solo performers go off and try to do different things. But, you know, if you if you ever go to a Billy Joel concert, you know, you go to a James Taylor concert, you you know what you're going to be seeing, what you're going to be listening to, and that's going to be the hits that they did 40, 40 years ago. Yeah. I, I agree with what you're saying about, you know, there's something very special about, about the Beach Boys' harmonic blend. I think even more than that, it, com- it comes down to brand. I mean, it's so hard to build a brand as big as the Beach Boys, and it was built between 1962 and 1966, and I mean, it's, uh, it's lasted ever since. I mean, Brian put out a very good solo album in 1988, around the same time as Kokomo, but which was the one that took off and went to number right. one. I mean, Brian's album, I think, went to about number 52, number 53. I think if just the name Beach Boys was on that album, it would have sold much better. Um, <laughs> yes, 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 and and it and it's, it 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 makes me well that that brings to mind a question that someone asked me the other day, and this, this is going to sound self-serving, so I I apologize in in advance, but it speaks to to the point that 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 you were just making. Someone asked me what I thought the legacy of Mike Love's book was going to be, and I think what it is is going to be this: is that I believe that. 100 years from now, they're still going to be listening to the Beach Boys music. Now, the three of us will all be dead. Mike and Brian will be gone. So will Al and Bruce. And everyone who's ever been associated with this group will will be gone. And I also believe that the hostilities and the name calling and the finger pointing and the things that you know we've been talking about regarding Mike, I believe that's going to go away also. I think it's just going to die a natural death, and I believe all that's going to be left is the music. 
And 100 years from now, people are going to be asking the question, well, you know, who were these guys? What happened to them? How did they survive so long? And what do they mean to America? And I, I believe, and again, this is self-serving, but I believe they're going to say, well, you know, is, what is a, a comprehensive, uh, uh, accurate, and fair assessment of this band? And I believe Mike's book is going to be on the top of that list. Well, it's a it's a very good book. I think I think you've done a great job. One thing that I'd like to say, and and I was talking to Phil about this uh, recently, was that as somebody that supports all the Beach Boys, and, and I want them all to get their you know share of the spotlight and all this, I felt depressed at the end of the book, which was unfortunate. I mean, I think the book makes a very strong case for what Mike wants to say, like his side of the story. But you know, you leave with kind of a not so great feeling about Brian. Not so great feeling about Al. Uh, like Mike, you know, he goes after M- Melinda. You know, I was just wondering, is this, is this the way Mike wanted to leave it? Because as you say, if a hundred years from now people are going to look back on this book, they're going to be like, well, these guys had a bad, <laughs> a bad relationship. It, it all, it all turns sour. That, that's well, kind of I, the feeling you get. Yeah, that you know, it's uh, it's a good point, and I I think I reflected on this in our first conversation that there there wasn't the resolution in this book that all my other books or or, or major yeah, projects um yeah. have 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 had um there you know to me the 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 sadness of the of the story is that what mike has wanted more than anything else starting in the 1980s um he he just wanted to make music again with brian and he he felt for so many many decades that if they could just sit down and do it again um, they would come up with another number one hit. That's what Mike Love wants. He wants another number one hit. And um, not, not at this point, it's not about money. It's not really about the ego, although Mike certainly has one. But to him, it's just the satisfaction about creating something that people love to listen to, and they will love to listen to it for another 50 years. And Mike knows that for him to do that, he needs his partner, and his partner is Brian Wilson. And uh, and so if you in, in the book, you know, Mike talks about the efforts he made starting when when uh, uh, Brian was with Landy, the efforts he made to 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 extricate Brian so he could sit and not just because he wanted to you know spend time with his cousin, but to to create music again. You know, we uh, when when the when the case was finally um, completed with the uh, the the. The copyright lawsuit. After the verdict was 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 announced and it was over, Mike and his lawyer walk out to the court steps in Los Angeles. There's a pres- you know all the cameras are there. And what does Mike say? Does he say, "Well, now I've been vindicated"? No. What he says is, "Now that this is behind us, Brian and I hopefully will be able to get together and write music again." That's all he's wanted. Um, and it just. You know, they, they Mike thought he was going to be able to do that as part of the whole 50th reunion effort, but he was not allowed to, and um, and that's his frustration, and and yeah. indeed the, the 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 exactly what you talked about, kind of the sadness of of the story. Yeah, and, um, on, on my blog, the Pray for Surf blog, uh, uh, before we put up the link for the part one of this interview, I put just a few kind of one-liner comments and kind of put them in categories of mad, bad, sad, glad kind of thing. And, and there is sadness, but that's the real story. 
and I think the benefit of that being out there a hundred years from now, as we're talking, uh, regardless of how people look at the music or whatever, it, it, at least they'll be seeing what really was and not some, you know, sugar-coated uh, kind of thing, because I don't think that serves the music or the, the truth at all. But uh, and and also, and and but, but let me let me also I I, I want to amend not amend but just add um, while you know people like you and I who know the history of this band so well we have regrets in in our hearts that you know why aren't they all together again you know uh, yeah. um, Mike himself has a very very good life right now and and I I hope when people come to the end of his of his book they won't be feeling sorrow they'll they'll know that yeah. he's he's a he's healthy b he's got this amazing wife and beautiful children and family and friends who love him and three um he's performing the music that he loves to adoring crowds so you know if if i'm 75 and, and i have all those things in place i, I would consider myself very fortunate <laughs> no and, i mean i'm not trying to be yeah. be flipping about no, but right. so so i i so i i think the i think you know, those of us who are fans of the of the band now probably feel what what you just expressed that sadness and what I just expressed because I I regret that that you know that reconciliation wasn't able to happen both for them and for the music that they could have created. But um, you know, Mike is not at home right now thinking about how lousy his yeah. life is. He's at home right now getting ready for his next concert or doing interviews or in the studio. They, he's got a, a new album coming out. So, I mean, so he's he's probably feeling better about things than you and I are. Well, one of the things for me, reading the book, these conversations, which Jim uh, and Mark really appreciate, um, is recognizing, and maybe this is a duh kind of thing, and I should have thought of it before, but always lining up kind of the heroes and villains in Brian's life that were open door opportunity people and yet also uh, hurtful people, you know, Murray and Landy and Landy. And, and as uh, Mike might say in, in the current chapter, uh, uh, we don't want to say Melinda per se, but just the, the people around him now that, that might be overprotecting him, who knows? But anyway, my point is that those people also were hurtful for Mike because they, uh, uh, either hurt him directly like Murray with the, the royalties or kept uh, Mike from being able to have, if nothing else, a relationship, let alone a, a partnership uh, in music. And so uh, I would just hope people get a bigger, fuller picture, I'm not trying to turn it into, you know, a Disney fairy tale kind of thing, but the reality is it's, it's a much bigger picture. And then I'll just quickly ask, we talk legacy a little bit here when there are no performing real beach boys or original beach boys. I think I may have even asked you this last time, Jim, but maybe in light of our conversation today, how do you see the legacy going forward? Uh, is it just, do you think there'll be just one band 25 years from now with the license or will that all fall apart and there'll just be people playing beach boy songs? And oh, the recording yeah, yeah. list left forever, but what do you think? You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I fear it's going to be ugly because um, there are four partners who yeah. control the Beach Boy license. It's it's Brian, it's Mike, it's Al Jardine, and it's the heirs of Carl Wilson. And yes. um, the 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 truth is that they if, if they had been functioning as kind of a well-oiled machine, you know, the the Beach Boys could have been 
so much more prominent now than they than they are in terms of sponsorships and promotions and being you know being able to leverage the music in in movies and TV shows and and concerts and being able to do so much more than than what they're doing now and they can't do anything now because they're in kind of a stalemate because there's so much mistrust among among the four and you know who's got the votes to do this or that um right. and so and so the question you know how, how is it going to play out going forward um and what will happen when the principles pass on and and the and the 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 uh the part the 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 ownership then falls to the spouses you know i don't know i don't know yeah we're going to see the beach well, boys experience <laughs> we hope it's experience and not explosion we're right. hoping that uh, the ki- their kids uh, at a, i know they're not children anymore but you know their kids uh who have their own kids now uh, have come together at least a few times that i'm aware of is cal saga so yeah. maybe there's some hope that that they you know they feel some relationship family-wise as well and recognize uh maybe they can maybe they can come above this because they haven't lived all those decades of no, that's a that's a really good thought, and hopefully they see the legacy that their parents or grandparents created, and it's a legacy that really the whole country owns in some way, and they can find well ways to um, keep the music alive, whether it's in you know finding people who will who will perform as the Beach Boys. You know, we we don't need the actual originals to 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 still hear and, and enjoy the music um you know so i for, for example I, I thought it would be a great thing if there was a beach boys museum in los angeles you would get fans all over the world coming to this museum oh, you have all the video you have all the audio you could create just an absolutely kick-ass museum um and there is zero chance of that ever happening because the the principals don't don't get along. Um so who knows, maybe down the road, <laughs> you know, if the yeah. if the children and grandchildren get along, they could create um the Beach Boys Museum of Southern California and you would get people from Japan, you get people from London, you get people from Prague, you know, and it would be it'd be a great thing. Yeah, very cool. We'll wind down here. Mark, a uh, question you wanted to ask that just has, hasn't jumped in yet. Anything, Mark? No, I think we've covered a lot uh, in this yeah. conversation. Absolutely. I mean, I was just going to add to the last point that, I mean, yeah. you know, uh, d- just like, you know, the Beach Boys tour with Mike Love and Bruce Johnston and the others benefit financially from it, I think, you know, if, if there's always a financial incentive, I think the the principals in the future will always find a way of coming together to, to make something happen. What that is, I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. yeah no, I, if, if, there's a, if there is a financial incentive, that would certainly – um, get people to the table, yes. Um, but when when you're referring to the principles, if you mean, uh, you know, Brian, Al, and Mike, you know that uh, that's where it gets it gets tricky. And as and again, not to belabor this more than we need to, but it's it's not Mike and, and Brian. I just don't think um, I don't think there will ever be a a resolution or a, um, a, uh, a, a coming together between Melinda on the one hand and Mike and Jackie on the other. 
that, I, I guess I'm looking more down the road. They're, they're errors, uh, basically. Oh, yeah. Um, hopefully, uh, I mean, I, I would see no reason why the, the errors would not be able to, to come together. Yes, that's, that's true. Well, here's, the, here's an ironic uh, end where Capital Records comes in and offers them so much money, they all sell their interests, and Capital finally does right by them in spite of, instead of the, the ways that, you know, the, the blunders Capital made, in the, especially in the 60s. I'm just dreaming this out loud right yeah. now. <laughs> and and they'll, uh, maybe they'll turn the first floor of the Capitol Record Tower into their museum or something. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of That's possible good. scenarios. So right, we can, right. We can only or, uh, I mean, there there have been ideas bathered around about creating a Beach Boys version of the Jersey Boys. Um, that would go over. Um, and if, if well, they the had a pretty disastrous one called Good Vibrations, did they not? Uh, yeah, and I think there was one before that. They just couldn't find the right people. But, and and you know. Stamos is one of the producers that owns the rights to uh, sort of, they're looking to do a Mamma Mia type uh, movie, but we haven't heard anything new about yeah, that. I, yeah, I don't know. That's, I, I'm aware that he's been working on that for a while, but it hasn't, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so, but anyway, I, I think it's, I, I, as as I, think I you know said before and say again, the the good thing is that the music is so good there will always be an audience for it. It's just how will the current and future generations find ways yeah. to present it you know, in 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 ways that that people will come and, and listen to. Well, I have hope. There's uh, certainly many covers of true Beach Boys songs. I mean, the Beach Boys did a lot of covers, mm-hmm. uh, which are always, in my view, almost always uh, a super step forward but there's been many covers that you go okay other bands that are other even other uh, almost other genres can, can uh, put their spin if you will on a Beach Boys song and it still sounds great but uh, and you guys maybe you've heard of the Fender Tones uh, oh yeah who these guys yeah I mean they just try to well they're kind of like the, the Wonderments uh, and just try to duplicate to the you know the tinkling of the bell uh, uh, the Beach Boys song. So what that just gives me hopes that younger this we're, we're into the third and almost fourth generation, and this music stands up against all the, you know, from disco to now to hip hop. And I don't mean that, that they're doing that kind of music. I just mean no matter what the the big cultural focus is, Beach Boy music is just beloved. And I and if I and I'm, I and, and just to make so just to mention you you know, you 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 know that. The Fender Tones, and, and Mike points out in his book that um, that when the Fender Tones covered Surf's Up, um, they they were joined by the Beach Boys, by Mike and and Bruce okay. and, and Scott Totten and Jeff Foskett, and you can go on YouTube and and watch that cover. It's it's brilliant, and I think it was important that Mike did it um, not just because he loves the song, but it it so flies in the face of the of the contention that you know Mike Love doesn't like the Smile album. When here you know five decades later, Mike is keeping that song alive. Or, or with with yeah. You know, obviously Brian is doing his stuff also, but Mike didn't have to do to do that. But oh, but he did point. it, showing uh, showing everyone that yeah you know this is this is a hell of a song and we're performing it and we are honored to do it. And if you listen to it as, as you just said it's 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 fantastic and, and i don't know the pretty upfront that he did not love the smile album 
well, he did not love the lyrics to the to the Smile album. He what he said to me and, and everything that I read in all the archives, he always loved the um, you know the musical tracks, but the lyrics did not he could not connect with. Um, but that didn't mean he didn't. But you know, and and let me just just share this with you real quick. You know, there there were a lot of things that I learned in my research that um that I, I couldn't put in the book because it didn't it, it it wouldn't have sounded right if mike you know mike saying it about himself but but i'll share, share this with you um someone told me and i confirmed it with mike later um they were at a beach boys concert they're getting ready to go on and and I, I forget who was doing it but someone was on the stage playing um the song from smile i think it was um Wonderful, um, right. one of the one of the tracks that Carl sang, and and if and if you know if, if Carl sang that one, but um, so there so Mike is standing backstage. Brian, Brian sings the smile version, and Carl Carl sings the smiley smile version. Okay, well, um, so Mike is is backstage, and and they're they're playing this song, and Mike is listening to it, and his eyes are are kind of shut, and it's a beautiful song, beautiful arrangement. And Mike starts to cry, and and, um, and and I believe it was Scott Totten was there, and said, Mike, you know, what? Why are you crying? And Mike says, It's just such a beautiful song, and I always think about Carl singing it. And mm-hmm. so, like, that's the kind of thing that I learned about Mike when you know, when I, when I hear claims, oh, he hated Smile, and he was under under my. This guy was so connected to that album you know, when he when he listens to it now it brings him to tears and so again that those that's a, that's not something Mike that, that Mike could have written about himself you know that would seem awkward um but that's how that's what what I learned in working with Mike well I know we're trying to wind down but what you just said uh you, you know for for Mike to say that about himself feels awkward i think some of the times i mean it, it just seemed in order for him to reveal his story there were some times in the book where I've, it felt awkward to me, like, and that's why I said earlier my statement about he is his his only uh, at times apologist who nobody else would tell this story or uh, you know kind of thing. Who else is going to say I went surfing with Dennis you know before we were <laughs> famous kind of thing? But but at least for me at times it's like oh but you have to tell it. It doesn't it's when it is awkward when you have to tell put yourself in a in a good light. And, and 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 I, you know what, you know what, Mike. I don't know if you dealt with dealt with that no, with him. You know, what, you know what, Mike would have been much better served if some outside, well-respected music writer had come yeah. in and written a biography of Mike Love, because the way um, the book has been reviewed in in in, in many cases and, and perhaps read is that well, this is Mike Love trying to um, you know. Uh, write the record. Right, yeah. Uh, settle scores. Write the record. Rewrite history. We can't really believe him. This is the guy that Rolling Stone magazine says is the biggest asshole in the industry. How can we possibly trust this guy? And so, and and you know that's it's unfortunate that no one was willing to step up and do that. And um, uh, and and so and so this is what what we have. And it's something that obviously you know Mike is very is very proud of. But it it didn't do enough to for for those who are convinced that you can't believe anything Mike Love says it, the book isn't going to persuade them. Yeah, 
Well, you and Mike have done uh, a great job of, uh, you've done a great job of helping Mike tell his, his story in readable and uh, I think at times compelling ways. Absolutely. Um, Jim, anything you want to say before I ask Mark if he's got a final thought? And then we'll close <laughs> off. Um, no, I think I think I've I think we've we've done a good job here. Well, thank you. Anything that someone else I think I may have asked you this at the beginning. Anything that comes to your mind that we haven't asked you that you could just drop on us that uh, maybe is important, but uh, maybe we're done. Um, about this, um, you, you know. I, I, I came away with, from this project also with a lot of affection for Mike's family because you know, we, we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, Mike being controversial and being kind of in the center of the storm. And, and, um, and, and if, I, if I mentioned this before, I, I apologize. But, you know, Mike, Mike has eight children, and he's got um, his, his youngest uh, uh, child, his daughter, Amba, is 20, and, and – um, on, on a couple of occasions, I've seen um, his two younger children with Jacqueline, Amba and Brian, Brian Love, speak to crowds. And it's, it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's emotional because what they, what they always tell the crowds, in effect, is you, you don't know my dad. The, the, the person who you've been reading about and you've heard about, he's a caricature. And, and then they'll talk about, you know, what, what it's like, you know, having Mike as a dad yeah. and all, everything they've, they've, they've done together. And they've, uh, uh, you know, you, you mentioned one of the chat boards and, um, you know, that, it's done damage. It's, it, it, those kids have been, you know, they're, they're, let's not feel sorry for the kids. I mean, they're, they're good kids and they, obviously they have parents who love them and take care of them. But, but I'm just saying, you know, I, I came away feeling like, a lot of damage has been done with the attacks on Mike. Not so much to Mike because he's he's tough and he's and he kind of is in the battle. But to his wife and, and his children and and so I, I mean it probably won't make any difference to people listening to this if they if they are listening to this. But when when people attack others like that, it's not just that person. It's it's the family. And uh, I, I kind of wish we had less of that. Well, I guess your book goes far in uh, helping to dispel some of that. Hopefully. Well, if this were church, we'd close in prayer, but uh, <laughs> I won't do that to you guys. Hey, I appreciate both of you, uh, Jim. It uh, sounds like this became, maybe initially it wasn't, I don't know, but it became a labor of love. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but as you talk about this, um, you know, I, I I'm sure, you know, the Mike haters think you're just being an apologist for him, but I think you're really trying to just tell the story as accurately as you are able to, to say it and who, who, at least in terms of quantity of what's in Mike Love's head, I don't know who would know it better than you. So just thank, thank you, you for your being careful careful about this. And, and I mean, careful and care, full of care, careful kind of thing. So thank I, you. I appreciate it. No, no, I, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me and try to, you know, get as much information about this as possible. And, and, you know, I, I hope it's, it's listened to by other people. And then I hope many, many years from now when other people write histories of the beach boys, this will be part of the archive that someone can listen to and perhaps learn from as well. Thank you. Mark, anything else? Well, I'll say for sure the fans will be listening to this. I think they'll be very, uh, very, very eager to hear. Okay. Okay, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. Okay. And uh, 
I'll just sign off here. Sounds good. Bye.